This episode is brought to you by Bent Pixels, the premier technology provider for the world's leading video networks and next-generation media companies. The Bent Pixels platform provides back-office network administration tools to facilitate partner onboarding, network intelligence, and payments. The company also provides digital rights management solutions for content claiming and anti-piracy on YouTube. There's a reason four of the top five MCNs and dozens more across five continents trust Bent Pixels. You're listening to All Things Video, where we uncover the past and chart the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're joined by Ben Lister, COO USA of Rightster. Ben is actually the first person I met in the MCN world when I started at Ben Pixels. Uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend, and he was kind enough to share his perspectives on the space over coffee when I was a mere week into the job. Since then, he's become a trusted industry contact and a good friend. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually told you that story that, you know, I was fresh into the one crazy wide world of MCNs when we first met. I remember when we first met. It was in Venice. That's right. And we had a coffee. I was already very impressed with what Ben Pixels were doing. Yeah, it's been, it's been great to be in touch ever since. Well, thank you. That's nice of you. So you began your career in the traditional entertainment world, working for Warner Music, Viacom, and the UK broadcaster Channel 4. That's right. How did you make that transition from traditional into digital? Well, all throughout my career, I've worked in the digital functions within those businesses. So I was at university uh, actually doing a kind of hybrid music and business uh, degree. At the time, everyone was going crazy about the MP3 revolution. You know, the download was going to kill the CD and all that stuff. And I was fortunate enough to end up in the music business at Warner Music. And I was the first digital employee there in the, in the UK. So we worked very closely with people at Apple on the launch of iTunes. Actually, that didn't come to like three years later. And a wealth of other products and services across, you know, online streaming, which obviously came a lot later. Mobile products with a kind of interim revenue generator. So I'd always navigated my way throughout those large media corporations in digital. And at Channel 4... I had a great experience. We worked on um, a number of projects there that were maybe a little bit more traditional in a sense. For example, I was working on a, a, a virtual mobile network operator deal at the time, but it also had a music component to it with Universal Music adding some music. And at that point, I worked on the YouTube deal at Channel 4. And, uh, and there, was, there was part of the team there that did that very non-traditional broadcaster, almost experiment probably. And it was a really refreshing experience. And at the time, I was approached by a recruiter. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been approached by a headhunter <laughs> that actually turned into a job, uh-huh. I'm pleased to say. And I've, I've been there ever since. And I joined the team at Base 79. I was the sixth, I think, employee at the time in a very small room in Waterloo in, in central London. And these guys had a fantastic opportunity. They had a deal to be able to sell the advertising on YouTube on behalf of their partners. And they, uh, they hired me to run business development and to acquire those partners and to help sort of maybe think about further distribution mm-hmm. based on the experience that I had. So, yeah, that was my sort of first start move into startup and my first sort of pure digital play, if you like. And um, yeah, that's a big leap. There's been no how did you know How did you know when you were ready for that? Do you know, I was, uh, I was probably 10 years into my career. And I thought, you know, I've had a great experience working in these actually large American, for the most part, organizations. In running you know various parts of international in, in London, I love the sort of well lit environment, the perks, you know, the all the wonderful things you get as being part of the industry. I just woke up one day and thought, you know, I need a challenge. It's not a big company, and I'd love to be, you know, have some real skin in the game and be part of something smaller that has a chance to grow. And yes, that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> Base 79 has gone from 
You're batting a yeah. thousand. Well, this is it. So, yeah, what was I employee number six? And then I think we were 60 by the time we, we sold the business. And now we're a little over 220 or something. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely grown a lot in that time. And yeah, it's been a real fantastic learning curve. Great. It seems like a number of other people go through a similar transition or, or seek to do so. You know, they, they come into some sort of calculus where they've worked in larger organizations for a while and want to make the move into a startup. Do you have any advice or recommendations for them? Well, I would say this is not necessarily what I did, but looking back on it, I should have probably done this a little bit more. In those big company environments, you've got this wonderful opportunity to learn lots of different skills that maybe one day you will apply in either your own business or in a small business that you're part of a team. So, I mean, I was, I was fortunate in, in the sense that being in digital, you're across marketing, you're across you know, press and publicity and promotion, you're in the commercial zone, you're sometimes also in the creative zone as well, which obviously in record labels and TV, I was able to work with A&R guys and commissioners. And I think you just got to try and you know, invest your own time in those businesses to get the skills that will pay you dividends in the future in, in your next career moves. So just... Try and keep it broad. You know, if you're filing contracts, you know, one month and, you know, making the coffee the next month, and as long as you continue that path of, you know, being dexterous and, and evolve your flexibility, you'll end up through hard work and, you know, showing up and choosing to write your ticket, being given opportunities. And if you take those opportunities, you'll learn how to grow your skills and develop. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's something I believe in as a manager and as an individual. And I think you, you kind of have to give as much of that attention to yourself as, as you expect from it. I'm always kind of curious about this because I think, especially now, at least in the U.S., a lot of startups are very glamorized. Our startup culture and startup life is glamorized. And we see shows like Silicon Valley. You know, we hear success stories of Uber and Facebook and all these other massive unicorns, quote unquote. And yet working for a startup is so hard. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that. So do you have any, were there any moments when, you know, you made that transition and you kind of had some big awakenings? Yeah, you know what? There were. And, you know, first of all, you go into startup land, I guess, with your eyes wide open, knowing that you should expect to work long hours and expect to maybe even try your hand at various skill sets once you get there. And that's where the background of being flexible has come into being useful. But I think as well, you don't realise quite how much adrenaline you're going to be operating under. I remember the first year that I joined uh, Base 79, you know, we did something like, you know, it was only me and one other guy in, in my team at the time. You know, we did something like 50 or 60 deals wow. in a year. And they were all over Europe and they involved travel and they involved all sorts of things. And you just think, how is that even really possible? These were with, with big companies, not just with you know individual creators, of which there were many, many of, of those as well. But I think you, you kind of end up you know surviving on a lot of, kind of commercial instinct, focusing on the things you need to do. Obviously, it comes from good management, having good people around you as well to collaborate with. But um, I think once you realize you're all in, the, in this kind of small boat that needs to set sail and grow, you know, there's a real you know, active interest in doing that. And um, you end up you know, becoming much more powerful um, than the individual components mm-hmm. as a result. It's, it's great. It's a fantastic. That's why we do this, right? <laughs> we're all adrenaline junkies who want to feel like we're making an impact and want to yeah. be part of building something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this far down the line in that experience, I mean, that experience started for me five years ago and we're in a different iteration of the company now. It's brilliant seeing you know, other smaller companies in the market pop up with, you know, niche focus or better tools or, or a smarter eye on, on certain aspects of the nature and the direction of the travel. And I just think, you know, it's, it's always a great opportunity to jump into it. But yeah, for anyone thinking of doing it, just get into it with your eyes open. It's, it's going to be hard work, but it's going to, it's going to be really worthwhile. 
So you started in London working at Bay 79, sixth employee, and then made the move all the way out here to sunny Southern California. Yeah. How was that transition? Absolutely. I was uh, fortunate enough that we had raised some money here on the West Coast with some investors, and uh, we needed to have an office here and build a presence. And actually, uh, Bay 79 had had some experience before doing that in New York. Uh, and so my CEO was at this point not in a position to, to do the traveling himself, and he, he asked me to do it, which I was um, very lucky to do. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, over two years ago now. So yeah, and it's, it's been a fantastic transition. You know, I, I come with wife and family, and so everyone's getting on really well. We just love California life and, and you know the great outdoors. And it's it's nice to not have the nine month winter. I would like <laughs> for a, for a change of scenery. Yeah, I would imagine. But of course, you know, you miss you miss aspects of the UK. What do you Europe. miss the most, other than family and yeah, family and friends probably at the yeah. top. You know, the thing that struck me was actually thinking of Europe as a whole. Hmm. You know, I was lived in it all my life in London and always thought, you know, Italy's over there and Spain's over there and France is over there and all these different subcultures and, and cultures you know, around you. You forget how, you know, small Europe really is. And once you start traveling around the States a bit, you realize that these things are all literally next door to each other with different languages, different cultures. And actually, I, I have started to think of you know, Europe as one whole thing. I think, you know, with the lessons I've learned are that, you know, you should really make the most of your time off and your life and your family and, you know, not be afraid to go to Paris for the weekend, you know, because that's just not really hard to do. So, you know, I think I think that's been really a good work. So you came out to LA working for Base 79, which was ultimately acquired by Wrightster yes. uh, in July 2014 for about 85 million US. Mm-hmm. How did that acquisition come about and, and how did you know that Wrightster was a suitable strategic partner? Well, uh, it was interesting, actually, because Wrightster was a slightly different company to Base 79 in the sense that it was really building technology and Base 79 was really a, a much more pure uh, YouTube network kind of play. I mean, both companies were doing different things on different platforms and experimenting with technology a bit. But for all intents and purposes, Wrightster was a competitor. And so it made sense for them to acquire Base 79 uh, actually, along with a couple of other companies that they acquired, Viral Spiral Group being the other one at the same time, there have been a couple of earlier ones as well. It made sense for them to build their business, you know, the Wrightster business in a multifaceted way across uh, you know, YouTube and other platforms as well. And so now, now we're a year plus down the line. That integration has been uh, really good. There's been there's some fantastically talented people that have run businesses independently that have been acquired by Wrightster, you know, now running various parts of the business and you know it's a great team it's a solid team with with some great products uh some great partners and uh you know a firm eye on things that we should be doing in the future so how do you articulate the rightster vision today so you know rightster is really a multi-platform network you know i'm not sure if we came up with that phrase or if, <laughs> uh, if it was already out there but because rightster have already had many relationships with publishers uh, and have done a lot of great work in world news fashion sport and of course, viral videos. You know, the, the addition of Base 79 and its partner set, you know, across rights management and, and channel management and, and more enterprise type clients as opposed to a pure creative play, like other things tend to be. There is now, you know, scope for us that, you know, we're really a marketplace to connect brands with content creators, large and small. And we do that sort of intelligently based on you know, our own analysis of, you know, the performance and the audience and the types of content that people are trying to. To, to make, but also with understanding the supply and demand of brands are looking for in particular in multiple markets. You know, having having thirteen offices around the world, you know, affords us the luxury that we really are truly international, truly global, 
you know, obviously I'm here in the US and a very, you know, busy, almost market leading, you know, territory for, for our industry. But, you know, the international piece is, is equally exciting. And I think, you know, in the world of online video, we are in the global economy. Yeah. There and all these next generation media companies that are emerging are, are seeing that, you know, you can experiment with audiences in real time all over the world and feed that back into, into the programming or the proposition that you're developing. So, yeah, I would articulate it and say, you know, we're, we're a kind of, um, you know, a business-to-business uh, solution for, you know, global rights holders and people who want to attract brands and, and influences into their, into their activities. Now, you've had an international focus for a long time, not just in the work at Rights from Base 79, but going back to your roles at, you know, uh, Viacom, and et cetera, in the traditional background. What are you seeing in the international market today? What are the certain regions that you're focused on? What are the overall trends that maybe are similar to what's evolved in Western Europe and the States and what's different? Well, first of all, you know, Europe is one big developed continent in a sense from from an advertising perspective. So, you know, the five key territories there in Europe are always very interesting to look at in terms of their their individual market behavior and how brands are interacting with with content, Um, you know, sometimes on, on platforms that are only relevant to that market. So, Obviously, Daily Motion came out of France. You know, social networks like Twenty in Spain, and uh, you know, obviously the broadcasters in the UK who have been pioneers at you know developing on-demand catch-up services for TV, ranging from BBC iPlayer to, to, to Channel 4's on-demand service. You know, I would say the difference is certainly with um, the US market. Sometimes the prices are a, are a lot higher for from an advertising perspective. CPMs, for example. And that's, you know, the UK, for example, that is propped up by the fact that uh, a couple of the, you know, broadcasters who have a service and a remit to, you know, actually serve the British population with, you know, a certain quality of content or a certain type of content, you know, they have this ability to dominate the, the advertising industry, probably a little bit more so than other markets, maybe a little bit more so in that sense than the, than the US, which, um, you know, really has the impact that the BBC has in the UK is, is probably bigger than, you know, PBS has been, for example. And as a result, you have um, competing broadcasters who are commercial, creating, you know, expensive technologies and expensive programming that needs to yield a higher advertising CPM. What is an average CPM in, say, the UK? Uh, well, I believe in the sort of digital on-demand universe, you know, we're talking about 18 to 20 pounds. Wow. It's, uh, and that's my, my information is two years out of date, sure. which it probably is. But so roughly... Like, 30 bucks okay. you know and of course you know a large broadcaster in the US may be able to you know charge 20, 25 exactly. but you know it's still disproportionately sure. high mm-hmm. so you know that being a trend it's it's a great market to lead you know a, a sort of short format funded you know business from and, and I think lots of you know lots of companies in our space in, in the UK and Europe sort of benefit from that thing you know further afield in Asia and, and other parts of the world that are less developed from an advertising perspective I think you're starting to see you know, the same sorts of trends that are happening here in the US, you know, people gravitating towards influencer marketing and branded content. You're seeing that, that stuff happening at the same time for the same objectives, which are obviously to help, you know, program makers connect with audiences or, or tap into, you know, the social influence of some of these creators around around their shows or their, or their broadcast um, outlets. You know, it's it's a new way of thinking from, from every marketer's perspective. But, you know, in a market, you know, say like India, for example, which is, probably traditionally underserved and, and underdeveloped from a, a core TV advertising perspective, it now has this ability to do brand content in a way that it can compete with or certainly be competitive on price with lots of other markets in, in APAC or Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of creating this global opportunity. 
Sure. India is an interesting one because uh, on the one hand, it's the largest potential YouTube market, given that China's out of the equation with no Google products. Uh, it's also interesting in the fact that it's a mobile-first viewing experience. Mm -hmm. And ad formats are less mature on mobile than they are on, say, display. And so we're seeing sure. lower CPMs or lower advertiser interest in mobile units. But I think that will shift. I think you know, we're continuing to see so that. You are seeing the, the same levels of engagement. Mm -hmm. you know, and you're right. Lots of, uh, I remember you know, years ago talking to my, some of my friends who joined Google saying some of the emerging markets for them were you know, Africa and certain parts of Asia that were not well served by broadband and sort of density there to, to, to get onto the online in the traditional sense. They were seeing their first YouTube videos on mobile because that was the way to do it. That, the networks were able to sustain that. Now that we're in a, you know, not all of these markets have 3G, but, you know, now we're in an environment where we're actually looking beyond where we were a few years ago with 3G. You know, there's, there's every, you know, possibility with the advent of platforms like, you know, Twitter and Facebook and others into short-form video that these mobile advertising products will exist and will exist at scale in these markets. So yeah. I think the next few years will be very exciting. Have you been following the activity in the MCN space in India recently? For instance, Nirvana Digital's acquisition by LA-based Zella Networks. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, anyway. that's new. It's very recent. Yoboho with yeah. broadband TV. Yeah, that's new. About uh, that Culture Machines raised more money. Ping Digital is raising money. Fantastic. Uh, QKey partnership with Full Screen. So it seems like India, in particular, is a is a hotbed of video activity right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Obviously, I'm, I'm fortunate that my my boss actually uh, runs our international business, and he's based in Singapore. He used to work. He used to run YouTube's content partnership team in Australia. And I'm pretty fortunate that he's uh, he's looking after all those markets because there's a sure. huge amount of activity there in Southeast Asia and in Japan at the moment. So, uh, Absolutely. It's a busy place. And Singapore has always surprised me because you would expect it to be, it's very westernized and you would expect a lot more advertiser activity there, even though it's a small population. But still, a lot of the buying seems like it's done out of Hong Kong or out of Tokyo. I think that will shift as you know, Singapore has become a hub for banking and shipping and other kind of commercial activity in Southeast Asia, I think it, it stands to, to have an opportunity to be a leader in digital video and, and new media as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things down in Asia that I think are interesting. First of all, everything that the telecoms have done in, in Southeast Asia and then the leading work that was done in markets like Korea for, you know, very early adoption of 3G video, you know, when actually the rest of us were still looking at, you know, images and sending texts. Um, they were leading the way with mobile TV for many years. Combined with the fact that, you know, as you said, Singapore and Hong Kong are these fantastic areas of multi-market deals for advertising and for um, distribution. So I think, you know, what we're seeing uh, in terms of multi-territory briefs and campaigns being driven out of you know, London for Europe and actually sometimes increasingly New York, you know, I think we'll, uh, we'll see a lot more of that coming out of uh, Central Asia. What does the future hold for Rightster? Rightster is actually, we just announced today some fantastic growth results for the first half of 2015. Thing, Congratulations, um, which we're very pleased about, and um, we are anticipating you know, you know similar levels of growth you know, going forward. The thing that makes um, our job very exciting right now is that we have a, a number of interesting products in the pipeline for, for our system partners and other people in the market, ranging from you know better and enhanced ways of working on YouTube and Facebook and, and uh, understanding your audiences and your programming uh, and how to best program for your audience to, you know, building on the strength that Rust already has with its publisher network and create some, some really smart tools and services there. So, you know, I'm excited that, you know, we're going to be working, uh, coming from the basic design side of the business, where we were working, you know, almost wholly on YouTube with a lot of our partners. I'm excited that a lot of our partnerships are now expanding into multi-platform, multi-territory deals, and, um, you know, we're going to continue to build on that. 
Mm-hmm. And what are some of those key platforms that are important to Writester? Well, no one can ignore Facebook of course. and the video revolution that's happening there. Although, you know, it is fascinating. You know, people say, I'm, I'm doing a million views on, on YouTube, but I'm doing four million views on Facebook. And of course, you know, once you dig in and you understand that three seconds is a view on Facebook, it's a whole different, you know, program. But it, there's, no, there's no question of, of the size of that audience uh, on that platform and the, uh, the engagement of it. You know, I was, uh, I was joking with my wife the other day, who probably only watches a couple of YouTube videos a week, but she, she watches about 10 a day on Facebook in her newsfeed. You know, I think the fact that the, the, the kind of they're auto-rolling the sound off is not actually such a bad thing. It's not, um, when that first started happening, I think people were looking at Facebook as a platform and saying, oh, it's kind of like going back to the early days of publisher distribution and syndication, and, you know, the CPMs are very low. But I think what's exciting is that Facebook is going to use or is using video as a way to drive conversation that's, that's not just limited to a TV ad. And so, uh, you know, my own view on this is that actually they've been looking very eagerly at what's been happening at YouTube over the last 10 years and said, well, that's that's a nice evolution of the TV business in an online environment for short form video. But actually, you know, it's maybe not about porting TV revenues to digital. It's more about, you know, creating a, a deeper, richer experience for for the, the consumer first on mobile, uh, potentially as a focus, and also um, you know with a, with a sort of closer eye on return and investment for that for that marketeer and the product they're selling. So I think what they're doing with Messenger as a platform, you know, for e-commerce and, and you know, email is actually going to be just as interesting as, as some of the activities that are going on with the video. Outside of Facebook, anything else you're keeping your eye on? Well, of course, every market has its own. You know, interesting opportunities for us from a licensing perspective, be it, you know, local TV services who want to license, you know, viral video clips to, you know, local on-demand services. You know, everyone's very interested in what Snapchat is doing, you know, Twitter with its native video play as well. But, you know, I would say any anything that's kind of short or long form, there's, there's an increasing amount of interesting evolution going on with the business models and, and innovative ways to do that. Of course, Snapchat's most recent announcement of that. Um, premium uh, replays is, is very interesting there. So I think we just, on behalf of our partners, need to be you know, thinking you know, very proactively in all of these environments and making sure that the right partners are in the right environments, you know, maximizing in the right way. But, you know, as digital people, I think we have a, you know, a, a role to play in innovating as well and thinking about how engagement works, how audiences should be measured, you know, helping a lot of our brand partners think that through and do research and, you know, on the fly. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about that space. Very cool. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about Ben Lister outside the office. You've done a lot of philanthropy and, you, you know, you've mentored digital media and tech startups in the past with Bethnal Green Ventures. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that work. So this is a group in London, um, in East London, Bethnal Green. They fund uh, some very cool ideas and, you know, I basically offer to mentor some of the, the entrepreneurs that, you know, possibly, you know, attacking some of these more, some of the areas that I have experience in, in for the first time. So um, you know, a great example of that would be a group who came up with a, a very innovative use for um, aggregating heartbeat data and were looking at filming some of their activities. And then, and then they had a, a broadcast partner that was interested, but they'd never done a deal with the broadcaster before. I didn't know how to distribute video. So, you know, with that, giving away the family secrets, it was very easy to help those guys navigate through some of the pitfalls of how they could develop that piece of their business without, you know, losing any kind of long-term ownership of anything they were doing, etc. And in all honesty, just, you know, having been in large organisations doing a digital function, I've had, you know, 
hundreds of pitches over the years and I've seen you know some really great ideas that you know I, I didn't back you know when I should have done um, fly and you know other things happen that you, know, you do predict so you know after a while you get into a rhythm of actually being able to spot these things and think around the edges of an idea so it's just nice to you know be able to pass on some of the benefit of your experience and, and knowledge to people who you know have got a very strong and solid idea and are moving in one direction but you want to make sure that people don't and in addition to advising some of these startups, you love to surf, spin vinyl. <laughs> well, I've, been, I've only been surfing since I arrived in California. But, you no, know, there's no great surf in London. <laughs> of course, you have the you have the southwest of England, uh, Cornwall, and everything. <laughs> there we go. Um, I have definitely tried it before coming here, but not to the extent of being here. But no, I, I have to say, you know, yeah, my interests outside of work. You know, I love to surf. I mean, uh, you know, I'll say it for, you know, I have twins, so I, I spend most of my waking hours outside of work with my kids trying to, you know, get, get the homework done and uh, make sure we're all, we're all living a healthy life. But um, I love surfing. I think every day that starts with an early morning surf is a good day. You clear your head, you know, you're doing some exercise. It's a, it's just a fantastic place to be in the ocean. You know, I went through a period of having, like, stingray you know, fear and, you know, there's all the hammerhead sharks that are being seen right now. And the weird thing is I just... I feel a draw to just get out there in the ocean. I love to go with people, obviously. I think if I went on my own and got hit by a shark, that'd be awful. You know, if you're going out with, with locals who've been to these spots, you know, every week for the last 20 years, then you're a pretty good company. So I love doing that. And the, like I said, the vinyl records thing has, uh, has become a bit of an obsession for me lately. Where a couple of buddies of mine are putting on events, you know, every month in Los Angeles, just getting like-minded people together to come and, and spin records. It's actually called Vinyl Night, and it's just a, you know, not a commercial uh, idea at all, really. It's much more one for getting your friends who want to DJ and have got a few records to, to come by. And actually, what we do is we, we try and get the, the people with the oldest records to go first. So if you're playing rock from the 50s and 60s, then you go on early. And if you're playing electronic music from this year, then you go on last. Because that tends to work quite well with the flow of an evening, you know, as the as the drinks flow, you want to get the, the music to sound a little bit more like a rave at the end of the night. <laughs> but yeah, the one thing that's fallen out the back of that actually through one of our partners, I'm doing a show every week on a Tuesday at five o'clock uh, on Dash Radio with, um, with a buddy of mine. And we're just, actually, we've got to the point where we're now interviewing some of the musicians that we're playing, which is really good fun. You know, we have uh, we have some fantastic guests lined up for the next few few weeks of that. And uh, it's it's been a, it's a creative outlet that I didn't actually expect to, to sort of be in actually um, it's always good to have these things outside of work you know I play in a band as well kind of stuff but what do you play in the band so I'm in a, I'm in a dad band I play uh, the guitar it's brilliant actually because uh, pretty much everyone else in the band is American and has this heritage of you know fantastic songs by you know Neil Young and the Grateful Dead and all this kind of stuff which is exactly what I wanted to get the band playing and yet when I come along, they go, let's play King songs and Rolling Stone songs and Beatles songs. I'm like, no, oh, I used to do that in England. You know? So it's really interesting. I think it's important to have, you know, a life out, outside of work as well as, you know, try and do a really good job in work. Absolutely. Um, I think if you can do those two things well, then, uh, then you're sort of winning for them. Great. What is the name of your radio program on Dash Radio? It's, it's hashtag Vinyl Night. This this started, uh, as I say, in, in living rooms, just as a sort of, almost a bit like a book club. You know, people getting together and just saying, oh, I've got this really random record that I think we should all hear. And uh, it's everything from, you know, reggae to dub to funky jazz to, you know, electronic music. We just created a radio show 
through a conversation with the guy, with uh, DJ Slee and those guys, uh, we just didn't think there was enough vinyl on radio. And he was like, well, I've got these decks and no one uses them. So come by and, and do a vinyl only radio show. I'm actually really pleased that these things are popping up more and more. There seems to be a bit of a resurgence in it now that the ubiquity of music streaming services is, is there. You know, the industry's you know, uh, pushing on 100 million global uh, paying music subscribers. And I think in that world, you know, discovery is a really important part of the of the conversation. You know, sharing stories behind the music while you're into certain things, sharing that with friends. You know, having some of the musicians and the, and the producers and the people that were involved in these, in these fabulous, you know, pieces of art tell you about, you know, what was inspiring them at the time. I think is a, is a, it's probably one of the most important things to be celebrated right now as we think about the next generation of, um, of music fans and giving those guys some, some icons and, and to be inspired by. Awesome. Let's get into some rapid fire questions. Sure. Let's talk about your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? You have to give me a moment. Yeah, yeah it's a tough question. <laughs> Take your time. So being part of the music industry when they didn't adopt the Napster model, this was an interesting, I can't claim that was entirely down to me, of course, but I'm going to take it as my greatest fame. You know, I was a very young guy in my first job and the music industry was, um, you know, suing Napster for copyright infringement or hosting the files on the servers. And of course, it was fantastically popular. It was linking its computers over the, the emerging internet and bandwidth that was available at the time in order to share and discover music. And actually, there was nothing wrong with that from a music consumption perspective. If you think now that um, Spotify and uh, Apple Music and Audio and Pandora and all these other wonderful services that exist are completely legal, they're, they're pushing music streaming across you know, high-quality bandwidth, it's actually quite hard to know how to connect or what to listen to. In a world where you've got every song in the world on your phone, how do you actually connect with that? And I think there was a community element to Napster that people were actually were, were recommending things to each other and you know, things were available for periods of time and then not. And uh, obviously it was completely illegal and it, it, it was shut down. But I think at the time it was, um, it was a, a, an innovation led through technology of consumer behaviour. The consumer behaviour piece was not adopted or, or acknowledged as being an important component. Popular holders were sort of, you know, the actual facts of, of the uh, infringements that were taking place. So I think that was a that was a real shame in many respects. And you know, P2P networking has actually started to be a lot more embraced than you know, by other companies who are you know, broadcasters looking to market things now. It's very interesting, but I think that that set the music industry back a few years at that point in time. Right now, they're trying to you know, they will be looking for new ways to innovate around how music is discovered. So that's that's uh, something I feel pretty strong. What books have you read recently that you couldn't put down? <laughs> well, I'm always reading a music book or two. I'm reading a book right now about, which was lent to me by a friend, uh, called Into the Sun, which is a really deep dive on certain aspects of LA music culture, ranging from everything from the Sunset Strip and the clubs uh, to, you know, big LA, you know, music scenes from Laurel Canyon through to, you know, the punk new wave scene. to everything that happened around, um, you know, uh, hip-hop and sort of the response to grunge as well so um, i'm fascinated by that I, I tend to read bits of books and kind of tear them apart as opposed to you know read novels from beginning to end although actually my favorite book of all time is probably um, you know catch and write which is just a fantastic story great book. I, I can repeat repeatedly read that one and i can't wait to read it to my kids they're probably a couple of years away from that. it's a never-ending um, fantastic book that. let's see i was also reading um 
uh, well, I picked up and started to read The Road to Los Angeles by John Fante, which is a road, road book. I have to say, I haven't finished it yet. I'm still two years in to my <laughs> Los Angeles experience this time. But yeah, far too many press articles to read and, uh, and reports. But uh, yeah, I do I do enjoy read. And I have to say, I do do it in the traditional sense. I read a book, not, not an iPad. And why do you choose that? Well, do you know what? It's the reflection of the screen. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Kindle person. I should probably give that one a go, but... You spend yeah. every other waking hour probably in front of the screen. So. <laughs> I spend so, far too much time in front of the screen, yeah. and it's nice to actually, you know, sit down at the weekend. I, I am actually one of those probably far too traditional people. I like to read the newspaper. I like to, you know, that was always a big thing for me back in the UK with Sunday papers and breakfast with the family. And, um, you know, that's one of the most sort of precious times of the, uh, of the week. Uh, these days, of course, I'm just listening to my latest Hall of Vinyl and, um, and thumbing through a few few press articles but um, I do I do like to read the proper book it's nice to you know take them on holiday and get, get lost in, uh, in some else's problems for long <laughs> what's coming next in either the online video or the music space do you have perspective on both sure well I think the, the online video uh, business is going through some fascinating transitions right now some fascinating changes not just from a platform perspective and you know everyone else launching native video services and you know, content owners, large and small, finding new ways to, to you know, grow their audiences and their businesses. You know, I think we're in a golden era for, for TV, you know, creatively as well as, you know, being able to watch TV at you know, any particular time you want to. I, I love the Netflix model of publishing all, um, all episodes at once and then just, um, you know, munching your way through them. So I think that, you know, what's happening in online video, certainly from, um, from my perspective, is that, you know, influencers are becoming more and more professional. They, you know, there was a period of time over the last few years where, you know, the price either had to be right or the idea had to be right or probably both. And actually what we're now seeing, I think, is, um, you know, the growing up of some of these influencers and some of these influencer uh, verticals where, you know, original programming and um, curation of, of original programming and content, old and new, is going to be really exciting. So I think, you know, we're going to see, you know, like Amazon, the likes of, entering the TV space whether directly or indirectly and I think we'll see a lot of emphasis on you know how these new stars are going to you know, lead cross over into original programming on our, on our bigger screens so I expect that to, to continue in the music space actually I, I think they're they're probably just going to continue to push for widespread adoption of music streaming services it's a it's a kind of bread and butter moment I think for the for the industry they need a lot of um, you know, hundreds of millions of, of users of those services really to, to kind of continue to grow the revenues of the whole industry. And so hopefully for things like Vinyl Night and for other uh, people that care about music discovery, there is an opportunity to have curation, crowdsourced curation become part of that conversation. You know, we've seen it for many years actually on YouTube. You know, it's always spoken about that if you were a successful creator, you were actually very good at managing a two-way dialogue with your audience. It wasn't just a single broadcast. And I think... Um, you know, not just music actually, but other forms of entertainment as well, have to maintain two-way conversation with their audience. Being able, you know, commenting, you should, you should be able to be heard and you should be able to be not necessarily responded to on an individual basis, but in, if enough people make a point, then that's a point that the programme makers, um, you know, probably have a responsibility to take on board. So, you know, I think with all of that, you'll end up with far more authentic and shareable moments in, in video and in music, actually. So... Long may that continue. Who wins the music streaming war? Is it <laughs> YouTube, uh, Music Key? Is it Spotify, Apple Music? What do you see there? Well, if history is going to teach us anything here, it's that you know Apple will always maybe innovate a little slower than others, 
but come to market with probably one of the better, better services. I have to say, I jumped in with both feet to Apple Music. I almost, um, I, was a, I was a Spotify user and I uh, used some of the other services before, but I actually waited until Apple Music launched to become like a premium user. And then I, I bought the watch the same week. And I, I've actually immersed myself in that. And I think it's a pretty good experience. It was definitely a bit buggy up until the recent um, iOS updates. They fixed a lot of the problems. Uh, you know, it was very difficult to discover an album when it first launched. But I think, you know, the radio thing is very interesting. The Beats radio service. It's almost like uh, in, a, in a world where freemium is potentially disappearing a little bit. And, you know, the, that's been widely um, written about that the free aspects of some of these services haven't helped the, the conversion into pay. I actually think the need for radio and broadcast and curation becomes even more apparent. So I'm particularly excited to see how you know, things like Beats develop and, and the audiences for that, for that kind of thing work. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely a market for people that just want to sit back and, and uh, hear, hear great music being played with. So yeah, I'm excited to see where that goes. In terms of putting a prediction on it, you know, I think Spotify has to get acquired by somebody else. Hmm. Why is that? Well, because they have a lot of great billing relationships. You know, millions of billing relationships. And I think you know there are probably some some of the larger companies out there really you know cherish that right now and as they continue to grow their services. You can't dispute the fact that YouTube is a platform for music discovery like no other, just because of its association all forms of content and, and how music runs throughout its mm-hmm. DNA. So I think that you can always, you know, bet that YouTube will continue to grow its presence. But I do think, you know, maybe I'm just an Apple aficionado or a, or a fanboy or whatever, but I think Apple will probably convert the most paying subscribers eventually. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the Apple TV services and, and uh, what the bells and whistles are going to be around that. Because, you know, that will be... You know, I think it will open up the world for you know developers and um, people that want to reach their an audience via the Apple ecosystem. Maybe even like YouTube did, but of course, it's easier to broadcast yourself on YouTube than it is to create an app, do it yourself through 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 Apple. So I think we'll probably end up with a you know quality rising to the top over there. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? Well, I have to say this because I do feel very passionate about this, but I think the data and the understanding performance data and understanding what how audiences behave and what they want and what works and what doesn't is still some of the most underserved um, components of, of online video. I mean, there are lots of fantastic companies in this space, you know, from the very large MCNs with all the creators to the very niche ones focused on certain, you know, genres or certain types of things. And brands are funding a lot of the development, you know, funding a lot of the content that's coming to market. And brands care about organic reach, and they care about views, and they care about conversion to, you know, follow and subscribe on, on their channels uh, across social media. But I don't think that's enough. I'm, a, I'm an advocate for knowing a little bit more about what's going on with the audience and why they behave in a certain way. You know, we have a lot of partners that have multiple strands of content. You know, some of them are uploading many videos a day. And in those instances, I think it's, it's our job to, you know, do a good job of saying what's working, what's not, understanding the analytics, not just beyond, you know, way beyond you know, subscriber and viewing growth and, and obviously revenues, but, you know, in a far more granular way, I think we should become statisticians now for the next generation of media companies and have data inform a lot more of what goes on. I mean, you know, in every media business, you know, you can't replace the A&R guys ears and you can't replace the commissioners think is going to be uh, is going to work and actually for the most part those things work really well but I think there is still a missing component 
um, of understanding the data better. So I'll be very interested to watch any kind of emerging startups that are, that are data-driven and um, care about actually taking that data and, and converting it to real practical advice for, for, for the creators. Very cool. What recommendations do you have for people listening? Whether it's personal, professional, just maybe some keywords of advice. Well, you know, if anyone's listening who is at the, in the start or the first decade of their career, you know, I would say, you know, you've really got to keep your head down, work hard, focus on lots of different things, you know, do things inside and outside of work that are going to help create the healthy balance for you, you know, going forward. Because, you know, there's nothing worse than seeing a CEO that doesn't have time to play with his kids. You know, and there's nothing worse than seeing employees of any business who you know, haven't learned some commercial discipline or even ways to sort of creatively think or, or influence um, you know, some of the decisions that need to be made. So I think keep yourself you know, broad in terms of skill set. I do believe that some people you know, have this natural ability to sell and other people have this natural ability to analyse. You know, I don't think you can easily be characterised just based on your, your character in, you know, early on in your, you know, your teens or 20s. I think you can develop those things. Some of the best salespeople I know in the world are very methodical and kind of door-to-door salesman types. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're very diligent. They're thinking about things incredibly well. And I think, you know, you, you can develop yourself into a number of different areas if you want to. So in the early, st- in the early days, keep it broad. You know, don't, don't back yourself into a corner or, or give yourself a label that you don't need. And always keep your eyes on the next opportunity because, you know, it's thinking one step ahead of everybody else that, you know, if you've got that three or six month head start on an idea and you actually start taking it to market, that's when it can make all the difference to, you know, you personally and to people's consumption and, and behavior for a better world. And I think, you know, that's really what we're all striving for. Absolutely. Where can people find more about you? Well, you can find more about Rightster at Rightster.com. And we have a, a, an area on that website where you can see our um, all of our office details. And, you know, I look after a team in LA and in New York. You can find more about... Final Night at um, on Facebook under Final Night LA. Um, we have you know lots of followers there checking out the next events and the radio shows and all that stuff. And uh, if you're interested in just connecting, uh, you can just search for me on, on LinkedIn. I'm always available for a chat. Great. And check out the radio show. <laughs> yeah, right? radio Make show. Sure you Tuesdays at 5 o'clock on Dash Radio and um, replayed all over the weekend. So uh, the best thing to do is follow us on Facebook and we'll just prompt everyone when stuff's available. Perfect. Well, this was so much fun and really incredible insight. Ben, thank you so much for being Thanks on the show. Thanks for having me, James. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video.